Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. This is the word of God, and it's eternally true. It's Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Now, when they had gone, and the word they refers to the Magi, all right, who had brought the gifts. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity. From two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, And go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is one of the saddest texts in Scripture. Why is it sad? Well, it's sad because somewhere between the historian's guess, 10 and 50 little children were killed. In cold blood, they were murdered. And the fact that they were very little doesn't lessen the tragedy. If anything, it, it, it enlarges it. It's even worse that these were little babies who were killed. Now, if these had been little babies in wombs that the mother had not yet fed, would it be less a tragedy? No. And it's interesting as I look at it. And then as I look back, one row, immediately two women's heads but the heads are going like this. Why? Well, because women know what it is to be a human being in the womb of a mother. I love being around pregnant women and watching their hands because their hands are constantly radiating love to the little baby in their wombs. They can't help it. They put their hands, and that hand radiates warmth to that child. That child gets to know the mother's voice, even before that child ever comes into the world. Uh, Joe, I remember her telling me when, when I pr- used to preach to her, I remember her saying to me that she was so thankful that her little ones got to be under the preaching of the word while they were in her womb. And I just thought, 
whoa, that was not a masculine perspective. You know, it was just, and I, you know, I'm not going to say Joel's wrong. And so here we have 10 to 50 little babies whose lives are taken. Their blood is shed. Notice how it says that Rachel will not be comforted. Have you ever wondered why it says Rachel? Well, because Rachel's a placeholder for all those mothers. Rachel wasn't there. It wasn't Rachel who lost all her babies. But Rachel was, was a symbol of, of Israel motherhood, right? Rachel would not be comforted. The Jewish mothers would not be comforted. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about who it is that, that perpetrated this terrible wickedness. Because like any good literature, the Bible has heroes and it has villains. And the Bible doesn't put the villains in there for us to not pay any attention to them. We are to learn as much from the villains in Scripture as we are from the heroes. Who was this Herod? Who was he? So let's spend a few minutes talking about who this man Herod was. Now before we talk about him, I want to read from Calvin on his comment on this text, this story. And Calvin says this, he says, all godless men readily subscribe to God in general terms. So John Calvin, who's a great father of the Christian church, says, all godless men, and he's talking about whom? He's talking about Herod. It's about this text. So he calls Herod a godless man. And he puts, he puts him in a category of godless men, plural. In other words, Calvin is committing the worst sin you can do on Facebook today which is name somebody as actually godless and then categorize him in a way that makes you guilty of stereotypes and generalizations. I mean, he, there couldn't be worse faux pas. You know, all, that's naughty, go to a marriage counselor, don't ever say all or never or always. All godless, oh boy, look at the label, and men. Men, what do you mean? Women aren't godless? And this is John Calvin, and I thank God that he didn't have to live under the suppressing political correctness of today, where you can't think large thoughts about groups. You only have to think about individuals, and then you can't say anything true about individuals unless it flatters them. So here we have John the Baptist taking this story and starting his, his explanation of what's going on here by saying all godless men. Now, maybe you've never felt offended for Herod that he calls him godless. Have you? Do you find yourself revolting against Calvin for saying he's godless? And the answer is no. You know, you've never had any trouble condemning Herod, right? I mean, why would you not condemn a man who slaughtered 10 to 50 little boys under two years of age? Right? I mean, if there's ever anybody to condemn, it's a godless man like that, right? But who was Herod? 
Let me ask another question. Where did Herod live? Did Herod live in Las Vegas? Did Herod live in San Francisco? Did Herod live in Nairobi? Or Joburg? No, where did Herod live? Herod lived in Wheaton. Okay? Herod lived in Wheaton. Herod was a member of the Gospel Coalition. You say, oh, no, he wasn't. And I say, okay, but you get my point. Herod was at the center of the people of God, and he was a patron. If Herod had been in this church, that wing, that whole monstrous addition would be done, and it would have been done the day that the walls were put up. Why do I say that? Well, because Herod's the dude that did the temple. Herod was the one who made that glorious temple such that the disciples with Jesus, it says in Mark what? Well, here's what they said about the temple that Herod had done. It says, Mark 13, as he, Jesus, was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And it's something that he wished he hadn't said because Jesus then says to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. So apparently Jesus was not bothered he was not impressed. And yet it was Herod that gave that. Who did he give it to? He gave it to God's people. The Jews were God's people. Okay? This is Herod. And yet John Calvin says all godless men will readily subscribe. What? To religion. Godless men are always religious. All right? Everybody's religious. And so this is Herod. What is Herod like? Well, Herod was a man who, back in 540 BC, there was a revolt. Uh, in the previous years, there had been a revolt down in Judea. Down there was fractious then as it is now. It's always been the center of the most fractious people in the world who, I'm sorry, I'm about to make a stereotypical generalization, and I'm not anti-Semitic. Are you all ready? You got your safety belts fastened, right? Jews are fractious. Now, can I get an amen? Come on. Yeah, right. Bob isn't here. You'll have to take over his place. <laughs> you know? I mean, Bob would be the first one to admit that Jews are fractious. That's why they do things so well, because they've been honed their whole life to have arguments. All right, why do they have arguments? Well, because the word really matters. And Jews have always known that. All right, so they're down there, they're fractious, there's a rebellion, and the rule of law breaks down. And the Roman Senate votes to send money through Herod down there to bring order to the nation, to be, bring order to the territory. So around 40 BC, he's sent down there. And what Herod does is to reestablish the rule of law and then to not just establish it in the central capital area, but to establish it all through the territory. It wasn't just that Herod uh, used an army to shut down uh, major revolts, but Herod 
also went out into the country much as uh, a, a navy ship of, of the Royal Navy at the beginning of the 1700s went out and brought order to the seas. They would shut down the pirates because commerce depended upon the peacefulness of the seas, right? And so Britain had that role. Well, that's the role that Herod had. He didn't just do it in the city. He didn't just do it with the government. He also did it with all the brigands who were out in the rural areas shutting down commerce. And it is said that he showed great courage in doing that work. So this is Herod. Herod also was a, a, a builder. He was an architect. And so he built beautiful buildings. He built a hippodrome. He, bro- he built uh, amphitheater. Theater, um, and you've already heard that he did tremendous work on the temple, making it glorious and beautiful. Um, Herod was also a man who loved sports. So Herod would have known all the details about Belichick and Brady and, and, and Kraft, right? He would, have, he would have been in the thick of it. He, he, he was a patron of the sports. He watched the sports. He was a sportsman. He was like, he was like a, uh, a cricket player at Cambridge. It was all how you learned to do battle, you know? You had sports, and sports trained you for leadership. It trained you to take initiative, to have zeal, to all this other stuff. And so this man was an absolute leader, okay? His great ambition in life, though, was to rule, and it was not sex and not money that caused him to commit his greatest sins. It was power. So generally, your sins as a man are going to be sex or money or power. And his idol was power. Now, how do we know it was an idol? Well, some of these other things you can make a case for, but you can't make a case for the way that he ruled. Now, much of it was good. Um, He did pacify the territory in 40 BC, and he went out into the countryside and pacified the brigands. But he was also good because when different leaders were appointed by Rome for surrounding territories, immediately he would flatter them, he would send them gifts, and he was able to get along with whatever leader of the surrounding territories was appointed. Not only that, but when the power shifted, you know, in Washington, D.C., every time a a different party takes over the White House, you know what happens, right? All the houses go up for sale, you know? Everybody who's a Democrat leaves, and all the Republicans come in, and then it reverses itself. And, you know, D.C. is just real estate sales every four to eight years, right? Well, Herod was so good at what he did that he was able to survive no matter who was the administration in Rome. And so whoever was in power in Rome, Herod was able to ingratiate himself to them and get along with them, all right? And that's really a master gift, you know, to be all things to all emperors, right? This was his great ambition was to rule. He had great political strategy, He even excelled at being able to collect taxes, particularly in the first part of his career. He was able to survive 33 years in his position amid the most intense intrigues at that time.
He used his position and he used his money for social welfare to protect the people against famine. Like many rulers, he used the public treasury to buy the approval of his subjects. And he stayed in power until the day he died. What's the negative? Well, the negative is that he killed his brother-in-law to maintain his power. He killed at least three of his sons to protect his power. He was so notorious for shedding blood to protect his power that we have a quote from Augustus from historians at the time. Augustus said, I would rather have been Herod's hog than his son. He even sacrificed his beloved wife, Marianne, on the altar of his power. And she was one of ten wives. And, of course, here we see that he sacrificed the holy innocence on that altar. Now, remember I said at the beginning that Calvin begins his explanation of this by talking about the fact that all godless men readily subscribe to their religion, right? And I made a note of the fact that he calls this man a godless man. So when I've gotten done telling you what he was willing to sacrifice for his power, you're thinking, well, this was not anybody like anybody that lives in Wheaton, and this is not like anybody who... uh, goes to church here, and this is not like anybody who uh, lives in Atlanta or or St. Louis, not like anybody in the Gospel Coalition, right? Because none of them ever engage in bloodshed, right? And so there's, like Jimmy said, there's the goodies and there's the baddies, okay? And Herod was a baddie. But listen, I just got done telling you that he's the one that patronized God and his people, the temple. And when have you ever known religious leaders to turn their backs on money? So you feel a little bit of the tension, right? He's patronizing the true worship of God and the true temple of God, but there's a little bloodshed. You know, and and ten wise, but, you know, I mean, honestly. In the evangelical church today, (laughs) you know, nobody really cares how many wives you have anymore. Just make sure you keep the one right here, right now. You know? Right? But we don't shed blood, do we? Do we we shed blood? (laughs) You're right, we do. You know, in this church, and I don't say this to be mean, I say it to be loving. In this church, I've had people tell me that they've paid for abortions. I've had people tell me that they bought Plan B over the counter and tried to kill their unborn child with it. I've had people tell me about the murder of their elderly relatives. I've had people tell me about getting fertility assistance 
And they didn't tell me that embryos are still frozen, waiting to come to, into the world, all right? But I knew that that's what they had done, because that's how fertility assistance works in, in such cases, it's specific cases, right? You create a whole bunch of lives, and then you put a, a bunch of them in the freezer and try to see if you can bring one to life. So that's not bloodshed per se, that's just keeping a little child in a freezer for decades. And you see, we are no more sophisticated than Herod was in explaining the larger purpose of our bloodshed, right? We just have different ways that we explain it in such a way that we don't have to feel the moral weight of it. But you realize, as these women testified earlier, when a little child in the womb is killed, the mother's a murderer. It's a great irony today that feminism, which is supposed to give women leadership, right, removes their moral agency from abortion. It's just a choice, you know, and she has a right to the choice, right? And so listen, if you read in the Bible the prevalence of a sin, and if you note in your Bible reading this year, and I hope you go through the whole Bible this year, because you'll do better than I will, although at this point, I'm right up to snuff. It's early in the journey, (coughs) but you should read. Just read five chapters a day. If you read through the Bible, you know what you're going to see all through the Bible is God says over and over and over and over and over and over and over again that he hates bloodshed. He hates it. That's what God says. And if you're any good at reading with a conscience, is you read him saying over and over and over and over and over and over again that he hates bloodshed, you're going to at some point start asking yourself, So where do I shed blood? If he's warning me all the time that I shouldn't shed blood, how do I shed blood? And then you're going to say, well, I've never used plan B, (laughs) right? I've never had an abortion. I never paid for a woman to have an abortion. And then you're going to be able to skip over all those places that says God hates bloodshed without ever having a pang of conscience, right? But wrong. This last week, I was in a terrible snowstorm driving on an interstate. And I mean terrible. And it was one of those times where the snow was coming down in such a way that a little gay Prius, which is what I drive, was just bouncing between the semis going by at two to three times the speed of the little gay Prius. And so my life was completely at the mercy of God. Because I don't think the Semites would even have known it if they'd, if they'd run over me. They might have felt me, but they wouldn't have felt my tin can car. <laughs> and what did that cause me to think? That caused me to think that God had every right to kill me right there with those Semites. Why? Because of how many times in my driving... I have been uh, a murderer. That's the word. And you say, so did you actually kill someone? 
and I say, you know, sometimes it's occurred to me that I might not know. It might have happened after I left the scene. And by that, I don't mean an accident. I just meant I caused a problem. I drove on. I never knew what, ha- what, hurt, what hit behind me. You know what I'm saying? But I can tell you that my driving is not honoring to God. Do you understand that? What is that? It's bloodshed. Do you know that Jesus said, you even call a man a fool that you're a murderer? I'm not going to let any of you off the hook this, today. You look at your relationships with your siblings and you think about what you do to your siblings. And it's murder. You wish they'd die. You say, well, I've never said that. And I say, yeah, but you felt it. You think of the anger. We always distance the things we read about in the Bible as if they have nothing to do with us except Jesus saves. You know? Every sermon is John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And nobody ever stops to think, what is the world? You know, we condemn Trump and Washington, and we condemn Herod, and somehow you and I live scot-free. You know, because after all, we go to Church of the Good Shepherd, or whatever we call ourselves now, Clear Note Church, you know. And listen, all of us are murderers. I once listened to a car of women describe their grief over their miscarriages. They were all about 20 to 30 years older than I was. I was driving, and I was just keeping my mouth shut. And I listened, and I realized something. I realized, number one, a miscarriage is the, is the death of a child. There was absolutely no way of explaining what was going down in the conversation of that car if little unborn children are not human beings in the image of God. But the second thing I learned is the reason a lot of them had such a horrible time with their miscarriages is that they had been ambivalent about being pregnant. They'd remembered the pain. They had remembered the inconveniences of life and, and, and how God has said that he will curse the woman by making not, not childbirth. That's not what the text says in Genesis. It says childbearing. It's talking about her pregnancy. Every bit of it is suffering. And so when a child miscarries, often the mother feels that she, by her lack of full embracing of a new life, is somehow responsible. Listen, we're all, blood, we're all bloody. You, you can't go through life without being bloody. You just can't do it. The sixth commandment doesn't exist because you and I don't need to hear it. And if you think the Sixth Commandment is just about, you know, being a gangbanger, you're just clueless. In the right circumstances, we're all gangbangers, right? We all know that. Any military man knows how close and fine the line is between murder and being a soldier. Okay? Now, I want you to identify with Herod. I want you to realize that there were many good things about Herod. 
but Herod was a godless man. He was a religious man. He was the true religion. But he was a godless man. One of the things that's most interesting to me, and I just pay tribute to where I pay tribute. I hadn't noticed this until I was reading Calvin. But did you notice what it says here? It says in verse 16... Then when Herod saw, and then what does it say? It says that he had been tricked by the Magi. He became very enraged. Isn't that weird? That's not what you expect. Then when Herod realized that his kingdom was in jeopardy, he was the king of the Jews. Then when he realized that there was a threat to his to his to his authority and power, he became enraged. Don't you think that everybody assumes the reason that Herod killed all the infants was because he was protecting being king of the Jews? This child was a threat to him. But look what it says. It says, when Herod saw that he had been tricked. In other words, he got livid with anger over the fact that anybody had snookered him. And listen, that is, again, something you can identify with. Because what really infuriates you about your wife is when she snookers you. It's one thing to just have rebellion. But when she plays you in front of the children... Oh my, you know, any man can handle rebellion better than being played, right? It's our wives manipulating us that really drives us bonkers, right? Come on, guys, give me some love. Oh, I guess I'm the only one. And ironically, I hate the word, but ironically, my wife never manipulates me. The difference between killing those infants because they threaten your power base, they threaten to usurp your position, and killing them because you have been snookered by some magi is the difference between jealousy and insecurity. And jealousy is a meaner sin than insecurity. Jealousy is the sin of a little man. Do you, all, do you all see what I'm talking about here? Herod was a little man because it was that he got snookered that made him fly into a rage. And if the next thing we're told is that he wiped out 10 to 50 little boys under two years of age, it's really disgusting to think of him doing that in any measure because he had gotten played by the Magi. Were you all cop to this? Wouldn't you rather that he had just killed them because they were a threat to him? But that he did it because he got snookered? Because he thought he had fooled them, but it turns out they had fooled him. Remember, he told them, let me know where he is because I want to go and worship him. He was lying to them. And now it turns out he was the one that got snookered. They'd say, yes, sir, yes, sir, we come back, tell you, sir. 
and then they didn't come back. Now, of course, the great equalizer is not a 357 Magnum. It's God. And God was the one that had told them. God is the one that had snookered Herod. But he didn't know that because to him there was no God. He was a godless man. He reigned supreme until he died. Another thing that's very encouraging to me about this is if you look at the very beginning, it says, Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And then what do we read? We read this. So Joseph, what? Got up. You know, we just flip right over that, you know. Yeah, yeah, he said, get up, he got up, (laughs) you know. But can you please stop for a minute and think about Joseph getting up, right? While it was still that night, he got up. Now picture it, you're the dad, your wife has just given birth to the first child, right? We don't know what point, but probably the child was still nursing, you know. Things are pretty copious, you know, it's quiet, it's peaceful, you know. But the angel said, get up. And this child is getting to be an inconvenience for Joseph. It started with him having the woman he was engaged to swelling. And an angel had to tell him to go ahead and marry her and not be afraid. He couldn't divorce her. And now it's the middle of the night. It's such an idyllic scene. It's so pastoral. It's so sweet. It's so Christmassy. But in the middle of that scene comes an angel saying, get up, and Joseph gets up. Now, you have to think about what comes next. All of you who are husbands with children know what comes next, right? Right? You say to your wife what? Honey, get up. And does honey get up? No, honey doesn't get up. If honey does get up, she says, what on earth is going on? And you tell her, we're going to Egypt. And she says, fine, go back to... No, no, we're going to Egypt now. I just got done nursing. I just put the baby down. He's actually sleeping. We're not getting up now. Honey, we're getting up right now. And we're leaving for Egypt right now. Why? Well, because an angel of the Lord just showed me in a dream that Herod's going to kill our baby. We need to leave now. Oh, for heaven's sakes, we all have dreams. Honey, get up now. And right there you realize whether you're a man or a woman. Because if you're a woman, your wife doesn't get up. But if you're a man, (laughs) she doesn't like you. But she knows she better get up. And so she submitted to her husband, because the angel told him, not her. And she got up, and she got up with her baby, and they left immediately that night for Egypt. (laughs) Come on, people, feel it. It's wacko. And I love it, and I love it because I love Joseph. He didn't have a fun life. Joseph did not have a fun life. Joseph was relegated and relegated and relegated, but Joseph did what was required of him. 
and he protected the Lamb of God. What a man. What a woman. Now, one last thing, and we have to be done. When we preach about Christmas, all of us who preach make a big thing out of the humility of Christmas, right? And really, the humility doesn't threaten our faith. It adds to it. It doesn't make us think less of Jesus that he was in Bethlehem because of a census, that there was no room at the inn. It doesn't make us think less of him that it was shepherds who came and worshipped and magi, that his mother was poor, that his father was poor. It doesn't make us think less of him. And so what is very sweet at Christmas time is the fact that Jesus, what? Well, that Jesus partook of all of our griefs and sorrows. Okay? And that is why Christmas is beautiful. But I want you to understand that this account of, uh, of Herod killing all these little babies and Joseph having to get Mary up and Jesus in the middle of the night and go to Egypt is part of that humility. It's part of that grief and sorrow. And it really ought to jar us awake for us to think that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one to whom all authority in heaven and earth belongs, was subject to the terrible, wicked bloodthirst of a ruler and had to go down to Egypt to be safe. That's wacko. That God would subordinate, subject his son to having to flee like a criminal and go to the godless nation. It would be like being sent to Las Vegas. You have a better one? Yeah, it'd be like being sent to North Korea. Or, worst of all, to Washington, D.C. So why did this happen? I want to read to you two statements of Calvin about this because they're so helpful to me. Calvin writes... He's talking about this seeming wacko terror and danger of God's son as soon as he's born. He says, we are here taught that God has more than one way of preserving his own people. Sometimes he makes astonishing displays of his power, while at other times he employs dark coverings or shadows from which feeble rays of it escape. And isn't that such a sweet description of your life, that it's a feeble ray? You know? I don't think anybody here feels like they're a, a, a brilliant flash of light, right? Except maybe, I don't know, Nate might feel that way, but 
I think generally we don't feel that way, right? Well, I know Mark, Mark feels like a feeble light, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many of us think that we live the victorious Christian life? Let me ask you, was Jesus that night living the victorious Christian life? Was Joseph living the victorious Christian life? Do they write books about Joseph and Jesus and Mary that night? No, they don't. He says, this wonderful method of preserving the Son of God under the cross, under the cross, teaches us that they act improperly who prescribe to God a fixed plan of action. Isn't that fascinating? Let us permit him, he's, he's talking about God, he says, let's let God, okay, let us permit him to advance our salvation by a diversity of methods. And let us not refuse to be humbled that he may more abundantly display his glory. Above all, let us never avoid the cross. By which the Son of God himself was trained from his earliest infancy. This flight is a part of the foolishness of the cross, but it surpasses all the wisdom of the world. You know, there are many ways that you could describe a church. I'd like someone someday to write the history of this church as a place that protected the cross. And didn't just protect it in terms of having it on a steeple or something, but protects it in terms of each of us being free to repent in our own individual ways, of our own peculiar sins. And that none of us have is the goal of being in this church that we escape the cross. And for many of you, that cross is people laughing at you because you go to a church where the cross is prominent. Can we be honest here? Because you're supposed to hide the cross. It's foolishness. Would you please shut up about the cross? I want the grave open. I want the resurrection. I want glorification now. <laughs> and I say you got to go through sanctification first. And sanctification is brutal and bloody and hard and over and over and over and over again. I'm done with this statement. To me as a pastor and to the elders and other pastors of this church, no question about it, the most glorious Christians in this church are the ones who have repented of the most awful sins. Do you hear me? Because it's not about them. It's about God. And God is glorified when a man says to Moses, Moses says, glorify God. And what does he say? I took it and I dug a hole under my tent and I buried it. And he glorified God. Remember that? Moses says, give glory to God. And he confesses his sin and God is honored. Now, he was punished. But who cares? Think of him standing before God, having glorified God by confessing his sin. Pray that God always gives us pastors and elders and Titus II women 
who will protect the cross for our church. Let's pray.